So we, uh, we're in Romans chapter 12 this weekend, and um, I'm the lucky guy because I'm just doing verses 1 and 2. That's all that anyone would give me. They're like, man, you're so long-winded. <laughs> we're giving you two verses. But um, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, so Paul starts the chapter, although he's, he's more towards the end of the letter, just by begging the Romans. I mean, begging. Picture the Apostle Paul, you know, a, a champion of the faith, down on his knees with tears, pleading through a letter uh, to a group, a church, you know, uh, that his heart went out to completely. You know, begging. What, what would cause this man to beg a church to do something? What would cause him to plead with the church? Um, well, you got to look at the fourth word in this sentence, and it's that word, therefore. And uh, for some of you newer Bible students, some of you old Bible students, this is redundant to you, but you know, if you're a newer Bible student, whenever you see that word, therefore, you ask yourself, what's it there for? And the crazy thing is, is, you know, most of the time you kind of look at, you know, 20 verses behind and 20 verses ahead to try to get the context. But, uh, you know, one Bible scholar said that this therefore actually takes us clear back to the first chapter in Romans, uh, to verse 18, you know, where Paul basically shows us the depravity of man and our need for a savior. Uh, chapters one through three, I mean, you guys probably know it, you know, where he talks about how, you know, God gave up mankind, you know, mankind wanted to sin so bad that finally he just gave up mankind to their debased mind. And instead of worshiping the creator, chapter one, verse 25 tells us that we began to worship the created thing. You know, and, and we all know it, you know, anytime you turn on the TV nowadays, everything is think green, you know, it's all about the environment, it's all about Mother Earth, and people nowadays, you know, they've begun to worship Mother Earth, uh, you know, uh, everything is about recycling, everything, all of our energies are saving this planet, you know, one person once once said, you know, it's interesting, because in Romans chapter 1, it says that we worship the Creator, and, and we began to worship uh, man and four-footed things and creeping things. And, you know, as you begin to look at our cars throughout the last few decades, you know, you know, we've got Mustangs, you know, that we worship, you know, and it goes clear down to, you know, the, the, uh, the Viper, you know, that, you know, it's just, it's a symbol of what we've done as men. We've turned our eyes off of our creator and we've begun to worship, uh, the creature, the created thing. And he, you know, it says there in Romans chapter one that he gave us over to that debased mind and, and he lists this sin throughout the rest of chapter one. And I want you to flip there. Look at just chapter one. Look at the end and just browse that list towards the end of the chapter. It's everything from 
homosexuality, both male versions and female versions, and sexual immorality, you know, witchcraft, covetousness, disobedient to parents is even listed there, you know, uh, just this, this whole long list of heinous sins that shows us our, our wicked state and our desperate need for a savior. Okay. Then, uh, chapters, uh, four and five tell us that behold, a, a savior has come and it's not you and it's not me. We can't save ourselves. You know, it, it's not by our own good deeds because we're not good people. We can't even do good deeds. You know, we're not able to do it. And so chapters uh, four and five just show us we're not saved from our heinous state by our own works, but we're saved by grace. We're saved by faith. Okay, so we're justified is the word that's used there. When God, the righteous judge, slams down the gavel in heaven and declares us righteous, just as if we'd never sinned before. And it's all because of our faith in Jesus. Okay, then chapters six through eight take us from, okay, we're, we're depraved, you know, depraved. We've got horrible minds. We're rebellious. We're sinners, but we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And then chapters six through eight tell us after we're saved, there's a work of the Holy Spirit in us that sets us apart from the world. You know, the world has its system of doing things. The world has its methods of doing things. Uh, the world has its economy of how things should be done. But the Holy Spirit who comes inside of us the day we get saved begins this work of setting us apart from the world and its system that is so flawed and so messed up. And so there's, there's this incredible work that happens there. Chapter six through eight of Romans. Uh, in, the, in the believer's life. And then chapters 9 through 11, there's kind of this funky uh, funk there that you're, you know, why, why is 9 through 11 there where God just takes three chapters and talks about Israel? And he says that we Gentiles should be so in love with Jesus that our lives are going to provoke Israel who at one time rejected Jesus as the Messiah, but they'll look at us crazies over here in, in Prineville, meeting for, with Jesus up at a ranch, you know, they'll look at our lives and they'll be jealous of us. They'll be jealous of what are we doing here? What, are, what Those guys are happy to be reading and worshiping and lifting their hands and, you know, crying with each other. What is up? With, I kind of want that, Israel is going to say. And so there's this neat process that Roman goes through. Everything from our wicked, sinful state you know, we have no help in and of ourselves. You know, we're even told there's not even one good among us. No, not one. You know, we're told that, you know, um, even if you don't do those wicked things, but you approve of them in your heart, you're just as guilty as if you did it. You know, uh, so, you know, all of us are like, oh man, I'm in big trouble, <laughs> you know. But the good news was we're saved by our faith. It's not about our works. It's about trusting in what Jesus did on the cross. And then we're, we're made more like Jesus by the work of his spirit. And so that's what the therefore is all about. You know, because there's such a work of God's grace in our lives, because there's such an awesome work of his spirit in our lives, Paul is begging us, pleading us, brothers, you know, what an awesome word to have there for a men's retreat. Brothers, I am begging you 
to present your bodies, it says there, or, you know, by the mercies of God, we just talked about all of his mercy, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. You know, because God has given so much by the shedding of his blood on the cross, you know, we too should offer up our bodies to him, not as dead sacrifices. He doesn't ask us, okay, now you all got to die. Go out there, you know, shed your blood. Not dead sacrifices, but now living sacrifices. Uh, Galatians chapter 2, Paul tells us that, you know, I've been crucified with Christ. We all know the Easter scene, you know, how many crosses were there on the hill? Three, you know, but really there's at least 40 crosses on that hill. Because every one of us, if you believe in Jesus, you've been crucified with Christ. And Paul goes on to say, it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives within me. And the life that I now live, I live in faith, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So if you're in Christ today while you're here, you can right now you can say, hey, no longer is Rory alive or whatever your name is, you know, but you can say, I'm dead. I'm alive, but I'm dead. And the life that I now live, uh, it's Jesus who's living before me. Because when we become Christians, we give up our lives to Jesus. We're new creations in Christ. And so that new life in him, it's given all over uh, to Christ. And I wanted to look at a man in the scriptures who we touched on him at a Wednesday night about a month and a half ago. And his name is um, Elisha. And if you'll just flip back to 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 19. Basically, the prophet to Israel back in the day of all the kings, his name was Elijah. And he was a radical guy. I mean, he worked some intense or the Lord worked some intense miracles at the hand of Elijah, some incredible things. But it was, you know, about 10 years before a chariot of fire would catch Elijah up into heaven. And the Lord told Elijah, hey, I want you to go and anoint Elisha as your predecessor, as your disciple, you know, as, as the next guy who's going to be the prophet to Israel. And so here in, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 19, I love this so much. It's just a couple verses, but um, it says, So he departed from there, and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him. And he was with the twelfth. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. So I love this story because here's a man who's receiving a call on his life 
to be a disciple of the living God of Israel who's been working some crazy miracles to prove that he's the one true God. I mean, there was a big showdown on Mount Carmel where two altars were built, one to a false God named Baal and one, you know, Elijah standing there by himself for the real God. And, you know, the false prophets danced around their altar all day long and no fire came down. Nothing consumed their sacrifice. But Elijah finally goes, come on, you guys, you're just kidding yourself. Your, your God is off, you know, going to the bathroom or taking care of some business deal, you know, or he's just not real. And he says, okay, Lord, if you're God, then, then come down from heaven and fire and boom, immediately, you know, the water was lapped up around it. The, the, the dust around the altar was all consumed. Radical thing to have seen with your own two eyes, you know, and Elisha is getting the call on his life to be the next man uh, to serve that God. So an incredible call. Now it says that Elisha was out plowing in a field with 12 oxen. You know, that's an incredible thing. And what we see about that is the guy's got a pretty good background. He's got a pretty nice farm there. In fact, it's kind of the Antone of his day. You know, he's plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. I mean, you can just picture, you know, 12 case tractors or John Deere's out there in the field, disking the field and making it nice, you know. And uh, there's 12 yoke out there. And, and Elisha is with that 12. And imagine there's this prophet that just starts walking out through the field towards you. I mean, most of you guys have farmed in one capacity or another. Most of the time you're out there by yourself. There's nobody out there. You're, you're talking to yourself, you know, cause you're so lonely. And then this prophet looking dude just starts walking right towards you. You know, the, his little cape flapping in the wind, you know, walks clear across the field. You're out there plowing with your oxen. What is this guy? What? Don't make eye contact. You know, maybe he'll just walk by me. I don't know what's going on here, but you're out there plowing and this guy, Elijah just walks up and tosses his mantle on Elisha. And, and you know, that, that was kind of like his outer cloak that he had. It was a symbol of his authority. It was a symbol of his ministry. And just very awkwardly, you know, just kind of tosses, tosses this mantle on him. And then just starts walking off. But Elisha knew what that meant. He knew that that was the Lord's calling on his life to be a servant of the Lord's for the rest of his life. And so he, he leaves that, you know, those, those oxen and he runs off after Elijah and he, and he says, let me go kiss my father and mother and say goodbye to them. And I love Elijah's response. He just says, go back for what have I done to you? What have you done to me? You just threw your coat on me. <laughs> you know, what have you done to me? The, the new living translation puts it this way. Go on back, but think about what I've done to you. Think about what I've done to you. Think about the calling that's on your life. And you know what, guys? The calling that was on Elisha's life isn't that much different than the calling that's on every one of your lives as well. God wants to gift you with incredible spiritual gifts so that you can edify the body of Christ, so that you can be used in the church uh, to glorify the name of Jesus he wants to do incredible things through you to show the world that he is real. And, and, you know, James tells us that Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. You know, and he prayed for it to stop raining and it stopped raining. He prayed for it to rain and it rained. He's just like you and me. He's, he's no different 
but the Lord put a call on his life. And there's, man, I bet if you were quiet and you listened and you spent some time listening to the Lord, that you'd hear the call on your life as well. But go on back. Don't take it flippantly. I've called, I put a call on your life and I want you to go on back and I want you to think about what just happened. And so he did just that. He went on back and obviously he considered what had just happened to him. So he takes one of these yoke of oxen and he slaughters it. It was the custom back then. You know, you're looking around for firewood and you're like, well, I got an empty harness right here. So just use that, you know, light, light it on fire. And, and he used that harness to boil this yoke of oxen. And there's something I love about this sacrifice that he makes with this yoke of oxen because it was a symbol of him giving up his old life to follow hard after the Lord with reckless abandon. I mean, imagine if, you know, you know, if Mark, you know, you're out there driving the tractors now, you know, imagine if the Lord put a call on your life and you said, okay, Lord, I'm going to do it. I'm going to follow hard after you. And just to prove that I'm serious, I'm going to drop a match down into the gas tank of this, you know, of this tractor, you know, boom, <laughs> you know, it, it would be a similar thing. He's basically saying with his body and with his life, there's no turning back. I'm sacrificing my past and I'm pressing forward to the call of Jesus Christ on my life. You know, he, he made an altar and he sacrificed his past. He sacrificed his future all to the Lord. And so if you were to make an altar tonight and you were to offer up your body as a living sacrifice, you know, what would the things be in your life that you would need to put on that altar? You know, what are some of those things? I really want you to think about this. I really want you to dig in deep. You know, because in the Old Testament, when a, when a sacrifice would be sacrificed, you'd have this big barbecue, basically, the altar, and you would put the, the animal on it, the lamb or the bull or whatever it was, put it on there, and the entire animal, the entire animal, would be consumed. Everything about that little beast was consumed by fire. And so when Paul says, I want you to offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice, he's saying, I want you to offer up all that you are, all of your hopes, all of your dreams, all of your passions, all of your hobbies, all of your finances, all of your time, you know, all of your possessions, everything that you have, I want you to offer them up to me uh, to the Lord, you know, and to, for Elisha, this meant saying goodbye to mom, saying goodbye to dad, saying goodbye to the family farm, saying goodbye to, you know, uh, if those of you like me that grew up on a ranch, you know, when you're out there in the field and you're working with animals or you're riding a horse, that animal becomes a good friend of yours. You know, you, you have a name for it. You know, I used to have a, a horse named Noble, you know, and, and you talk to Noble and you pet noble and you groom noble and you feed noble and then you kill noble <laughs> you know that's basically what happened is he, he killed these animals that that were a big part of his life to to make a point to elijah and to the lord that it's done i'm done there's no going back and jesus tells us that's what we need to do with our lives you know, he says in flip over to Matthew chapter 16, verse 24.
says, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So if anyone wants to follow after me, you need to consider yourself crucified with Christ. The old John, the old Mike, the old Greg, the old Travis, the old all of us, we're gone. If you want to follow after Jesus, then daily you've got to take up your cross and you've got to reckon the old man dead. All that you are is on the altar. All that you are is consumed. And I just love that Elisha, he, he did that. You know, there's a story of um, Hernando Cortez back in 1519. And Hernando Cortez was this Spanish, basically conquistador, you know, who, um, who led 500 soldiers and 11 sailors, or 100 sailors, sorry, on 11 ships from Spain down to the, I think it's the Yucatan uh, down there by Mexico. And they brought, you know, these 11 ships, just massive ships pull up and, and park or whatever it is that they do there at the, at the, the shores there on Mexico. And their whole goal was to come and seize this huge gold, um, hoard that the Aztecs had been keeping, you know, this massive riches that Cortez wanted. And he was known to be this gifted orator. And so as he, you know, obviously convinced 500 soldiers and 100 sailors to come with them. They all got off the boat and got their swords and got their shields and got their spears and their horses and they were ready to go kick some Aztec booty for some gold. When, you know, he, he said, before we go, I want to make a speech. So everybody got around him. And, you know, he was a gifted orator. And so he starts making this awesome speech and getting everybody fired up to go and conquer these Aztecs and get our gold. Yeah, everyone's cheering. And right at the height of his speech, he yells out, burn the ships. You know, and, and you know, history says that guys were saying, what? No, 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 what? No. I say again, burn the ships. And he met a little bit of resistance. Why? Why would we burn the ships? And he says, because we're going to go in there and we're going to win and we're going to conquer and we're going to get our gold. And if we go back home at all, we're going to be going home in their ships. And so they lit the ships on fire. And what he did there was he made the need to succeed paramount. I mean, they couldn't just kind of chuckle into the jungle and get scared and see a spider and a snake and say, let's get out of here, you know, and run back, get in their ships and go home. No, if they ever wanted to see their family again, they had to win. And it's the same thing with us. You know, we've got to burn our past life. We can't have anything to fall back to. You know, with us in Jesus, it's, it's all, all out, all of our passions, all of our energies in it to win it or nothing. You know, our, our lives are offered up to him as living sacrifices. And, uh, you know, if you look over there in Luke chapter 14, 
And as you're just flipping there, you know, Elisha at this point had no, nothing to fall back to. You know, he'd shown the world that his life was now a sacrifice uh, to being a servant of the Lord. And in Luke chapter 14, verse 25, you know, speaking of Jesus, it says, Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. You know, what is Jesus talking about there? Hate your mom? I thought we were supposed to honor our mother and father. You know, and most of you have heard, you know, what Jesus is speaking there of it is in comparison to your love to Jesus and your dedication to Jesus, your love for Jesus should be so all-consuming and so passionate and so, you know, you're dedicated to Christ and to following him that, you know, your love for your mom looks like hatred practically. You know, your love for your family, your love for yourself, the love for your possessions, it, it almost looks like a hatred because you're so sold out for Jesus, you know, really you can't even compare it. And so if you want to follow Jesus, there has to be that comparison. He goes on to say, and whoever does not uh, bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he's laid the foundation, he's not able to finish. And all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. And you know, um, I know up here they've been uh, building a fire tower up on the hill back there. And I remember months ago, Kevin telling me about bidding that job. And uh, basically, you know, you could transfer this to that. You know, as Kevin is building the job, he gives Jim a quote, you know, and okay, that looks fine. And as they're building that tower, they only quoted enough or counted enough for half the tower to be built. So now everybody that drives by or drives by on the highway, they would say, what kind of a fool, you know, made that quote or what kind of a crazy, you know, foolishness. There's a half a tower there. In the same way with our Christianity, you know, with our, with our relationship with Christ, with our worship to Christ, we need to count the cost. What is the Lord asking us to give him? Part of us? A little bit of us? Weekends? You know, 10% of our money tithe? What is he asking of us? I'll tell you what he's asking of you. Everything. That's what he's asking. All of you, all of your relationships, everything that you are, he wants it. And we've got to realize as we come into this relationship with Christ, we've got to count the cost. Are we willing to give up that sin or that pleasure, you know, or that hobby that's maybe taking time away from Jesus? And so I love that, that Elisha was willing to do that. And, you know, Deuteronomy chapter 6, Jesus quotes it when he's asked by a lawyer, hey, what's the greatest commandment out of all of them? You know, I don't know, shall not murder maybe? That seems like it's a big one, you know. But he says, I'll tell you, it's you should love the Lord your God 
with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. Basically, the commandment that we need to follow is just loving God with all that we are, giving all of ourselves up on the altar um, you know, of our faith and giving it up uh, so that... Uh, so that it's evident to him that we love him. And if we love the Lord with all of our heart, you know, the first, I think it's six commandments, is the first six that deal in our relationship with the Lord, you know, not having any graven images, not worshiping any other God, keeping the Sabbath, you know, all of those things deal with our relationship with God. And if we love our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, of our mind, it's going to be easy to keep those things. If we love our neighbor as ourself, we're not going to covet our neighbor's wife because we wouldn't want him to do that to us. You know, we're not going to murder him because we wouldn't want him to do that to us. And it's just natural to keep the rest of those commandments as you follow the greatest commandment that Jesus put it. But what is that greatest commandment? It's all. It's giving him your all, giving him all your mind, giving him all your love, loving him. And as we see there in Romans chapter 12, uh, it's an act of worship Let's just look at that again. Um, you know, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Or what does ESV say, Stuart? Oh, okay, I thought you. Where's your, Kevin? Uh, it says, which is your spiritual worship. As we offer up our bodies as living sacrifices, it's spiritual worship, but I love that it puts it, it's a reasonable service. How can the Lord ask for all of me? How can the Lord ask, you know, for that relationship that I'm in that doesn't honor him or that, you know, that, that thing that's holding me? How can he ask for that? He doesn't know what he's asking. It's a reasonable thing, Paul tells us, for him to ask for that. I mean, wouldn't you say that if, you know, a firefighter out there, um, you know, your, your apartment was on fire and a firefighter came in and saved you and saved your family. And, you know, as he was taking you out, he ran to get the kitten, you know, and the apartment collapsed on him and he became a quadriplegic for the rest of his life, but he saved you. Wouldn't you say it would be a reasonable thing for, you know, all that you are to be you know, loving and, and, you know, part of his life and a friend to him and, you know, helping him out. You know, now that he's paralyzed, he needs help around his house. Of course, that's a reasonable thing uh, to do. In the same manner, Jesus came, gave his whole life for us. You know, he didn't do anything wrong, but he was the substitute on the cross when it should have been us. And he died for us. And so it's a reasonable thing for us to lay down our lives and live 100% uh, for him as well. Notice the things about these sacrifices as we're sacrificed. Uh, he uses the words holy and acceptable. And I want you right now to just examine your life. And wherever in your life there's a lack of holiness in whatever area that might be, it means that you're not completely offering yourself up to the Lord. If that's a struggle on the internet, if it's certain movies that you're watching, if it's, you know, drunkenness in your life, 
if it's filthy speech coming out of your mouth, you know, if it's an addiction or something like that, anything that's not holy, and maybe you're like, well, I don't even know what holy is, so who cares? Holy speaks of pure, you know, a, a purity in your life. And wherever there's a lack of purity in your life, being set apart from this world, it means that there's a lack of all of you on the altar. And I think that for me, for, for some of us in this room, maybe most of us in this room, you know, we like the idea of being a living sacrifice for the Lord, but really when we're set upon that altar, you know, we kind of leave an appendage hanging off, you know, or you can have all of me, but not that, you know, or we kind of like sneakily throw this thing off the altar, you know, don't let that burn. I'm keeping that for myself. And that is such a dangerous thing. At our church, we've been going through the, the Kings, first and second Kings. And it's just crazy to see how, uh, uh, the, the second, technically the third King of Israel, Solomon, was told by the Lord that if you obey me and you follow my statutes and my commandments that I told your father David, I will prosper you. I'm going to give you victory over your enemies, you know, and, and, you know, silver will be like a pebble on the ground to you. I mean, I'm going to prosper you if you obey me, but if you disobey me, you know, and this promise was for all of them, I'm going to vomit you out of the land. And so it's crazy as we've been studying these Kings that, uh, uh, these Kings would always have these struggles in their lives with worshiping the false gods that used to be in Israel. In Leviticus chapter 18, when the children of Israel were coming into the land of Israel, the Lord said, you see these bad Canaanites that I'm kicking out of the land? They've got these nasty pagan practices, harlotry, sexual immorality, um, um, uh, incest. (laughs) I'm like, what's it, you know, with your family? Um, incest, you know, because these guys are so, sorry, I'm so pure. I don't even know the lingo, but, um, uh, you know, these wicked pagan Canaanites, they were sacrificing their children, child sacrifice. He says, these people, they make me sick and I'm vomiting them out of the land and I'm giving you the land. But if you guys do it, I'm going to vomit you out of the land. And so these Kings of Israel, You know, there were about four good kings that would tear down these bad, nasty places. And, but all the other ones, they began to worship these bad, nasty places. And, uh, it says under every green tree in Israel and every high hill, there was, there were these worship areas of nastiness to these false gods, sexual immorality and pornographic stuff and child sacrifice. And some of the kings would go in and kind of take down the idol off of that spot, but they would leave the pedestal. You know, they would leave the worship area. And sometimes that's what we do, just like the kings. The Lord's asking us to give up our lives as a living sacrifice. And so we kind of like, oh yeah, I'm totally taking down this thing that God doesn't want me to have. I'm totally taking, but we're leaving a kind of a place to return to with it. You know, uh, we're, we're, you know, turning off the, HBO channel on our direct TV, but we're leaving our internet completely open for us to go and to stumble in, you know, and the Lord's like, no, don't, don't kind of halfway surrender to me. Give it all up to me. You know, um, uh, he, he wants it all. 
He wants it all. And, and it's so sad to see some of the kings like King Jehu, you know, who, who it says that his heart wasn't given fully over to the Lord, you know, or, or to look at a king like King Ahaz. And, and King Ahaz, here's what it says about King Ahaz. And just let me read this to you. Uh, it says in Second Chronicles 28, it says, In the time of his distress, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. This is that King Ahaz. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him. Uh, and then he went, it goes on to say, but they were the ruin of him and all of Israel. King Ahaz had a name that he was a king of Israel. I'm a godly king is basically what he was saying. But he would worship these other gods in his life. And it says there, they were the ruin of him. And let me tell you this. If there's any area in your life that is kind of hanging off the altar, it's still a God. You're still worshiping it. You know, it's going to be the ruin of you. It's going to be your downfall spiritually. You know, Jesus says you can't serve God and money. You know, he's saying you can't have two gods in your life. You're either going to love one or hate the other or love one and hate the other. You can't serve both. And so I would say, you know, anything that you're not giving up to the Lord is your Lord. You know, that relationship that's causing you to stumble and fall into sin, you know, a lot of married guys around there, but maybe single guys, you know, uh, if you're not giving it up on the altar and being willing to part with it, then it's your God. You know, or that drug or that alcohol you're taking, which is causing, you know, you have to have the rush, you have to have the buzz, you have to have the feeling, and you're not giving it up to God, it's your God. Whatever it is, the refrigerator, you know, Paul actually says that some people, their God is their belly, and I might kind of fall into that category, you know. Um, man, I just, I gotta eat. I went back for seconds and it took me a while to finish it over there, that lasagna, you know. If, if we're not giving up our gluttony to the Lord, then food is our God. You know, anything that, that takes the place of, of God in our life, our time, you know, we're not able to, to go to church because we're avid bow hunters or, you know, and that's not just for a week or something, but you know, there's something it's, it's consuming your life or your family life is failing. Your time with God is failing because of your business or because of your career then it's a God. If anything in your life is causing you to, you know, you're, you would rather disobey God and do it than obey God. It's your God. And it all needs to be put upon the altar, thrust upon the altar, consumed. And it's a reasonable service. As it says, it's a reasonable act of, of, of praise to the Lord. And then verse two, and we're, we're almost done says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so now that we're living sacrifices where we've been crucified with Christ, but yet we live and, and it's not us living, it's Christ in us. Then it says, you know, don't be conformed to the world now in the way that they do stuff. And the way that they worship, we can't be like that word conformed there. Um, you know, the Phillips translation says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. 
You know, the world tells us how we should behave, how our marriages should look, how we should date, how we should entertain ourselves. You know, the things that we should keep for ourselves, the world deceives us by telling us we have a right to these things. When we don't have a right to these things, our life isn't any longer ours. It's Jesus's. We've been bought with a price. It's his life now. And the world conforms us, squeezes us into its mold so that we'll look just like it. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. But be transformed, it says. That word transformed is metamorphous. You know, like a caterpillar, you know, or crawling up the tree and making the cocoon. And it's changed into a completely different creature, a butterfly that can fly now. Not crawl on however many legs they have, but can fly. Completely different creature. That's what the Lord wants to do through us. He wants to transform us. He wants to metamorphose us and change us. But how? You might be asking, how can I change? It seems hopeless. How could I possibly change from doing these things and being addicted to this stuff and having these habits and loving this hobby so much that I really don't want to be in church you know, or be in fellowship or serve others? We change, we metamorphose by having our mind renewed. And how do we have our mind renewed? By spending time with Jesus. The more we spend time with Jesus, the more our mind is changed. Really, we're brainwashed. <laughs> our brain is washed, you know? And it's not recovery, you know? You know, we've been talking a lot about recovery groups. It's not recovery. We don't want to go back to what we used to be. <laughs> But rather, it's redemption that happens in us. And our minds are renewed and they're changed. We're able to understand things uh, the way that the Lord understands things. The renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. As your mind is renewed and as you're, you've given your life over to Jesus, you're spending time with Jesus, your mind is being renewed, and now you're going to be able to know what God's will is in your life. Daily, hourly, what's God's will right now? What should I do? Uh, you're shown that by spending time with Him, given an understanding of that. And I know it seems hopeless at times, you know, uh, you know that, that habit that's so hard to break, uh, the uh, the lust, you know, you're walking down the street and every woman that you see, you have a lustful thought about and you just beat yourself in the face and gouge out your eyes. Like, can I ever just think a pure thought? You know, the, um, you know, the habit, uh, the God in your life, can it ever be crushed down? Yes, it can be crushed down. And the cool thing is, is then you do get to a good king every now and then the king's like, Hezekiah, that's where we're at right now on Wednesday nights. Hezekiah was a good king, just like David, it says. And he went to those high places on every hill and he thrashed those stupid platforms and those stupid idols. He broke the clay things. He shattered the wooden things. He cut up those things. He even took this special artifact from Moses' day, a very special thing that even Jesus referenced. It was a pole with a snake on it. Uh, that a miracle happened. I mean, a wonderful relic, an artifact. And people began worshiping it, so he thrashed it. With reckless abandon, he sacrificed everything 
for the sake of knowing the Lord and having a right relationship with him. So it is possible. And the Lord tells us there's no temptation that will overtake you except that which is common to man. You know, there's so many men that struggle. You might think, man, there's this temptation or there's this sin. There's this lust. There's this addiction. There's no way I can ever be freed from it. Well, one encouraging thing, you're not the only one struggling with it. But then the verse goes on to say, and he is faithful and he will make the way of escape available. That's an encouraging thing. And so, you know, it's easy to get condemned. It's easy to, man, I've just been struggling so much. And Rory's talking about, you know, victory that we can have is living sacrifices. And if you'll just, as we close, look at Romans chapter 7, verse 15. This is a a totally encouraging passage to me. Because Paul basically says, we can just read it, um, for what I'm doing, I don't understand. Um, For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it's good. But now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You know, I love that passage because he's saying, okay, I know what's right to do and I know what's wrong to do. And what I want to do, I'm not doing it. But what I don't want to do, I'm doing it. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who can deliver me from this pattern, this life? It doesn't end in hopelessness, but he goes on to say what? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And you want to know what's cool? Something like 30 times there in those verses, the word I or me is used. So if we were to take out all the other words, it'd be I, me, I, 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 me, I, I, me, 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 I, I, me, I, me, I, me, I, me, I, me, 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 I, I, I. Chapter eight comes along and it's so encouraging because it's like there's a change in Paul's tone as he says, there's victory, but it's all by the spirit. The spirit of God who dwells in us gives us the victory and not even once is the word I used, but just as many times references to the Holy Spirit are used, bringing us the victory. And just look there in verse nine of chapter eight, but you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he's not his. And so what an encouraging thing that the Holy Spirit dwells in you and will give you the victory. You know, instead of having a big burden put on you tonight, I hope you would see 
that rather there's freedom to be walking in victory and to be walking as living sacrifices. And you can give these things up to God on the altar, not by your own strength, but by the the power of the Holy Spirit that's in you. Trust in the work of the cross. And it's a really cool thing because in the next day we're going to see that once we offer up all that we are on the altar, we're going to be given gifts, gifts of the Spirit that we can use them in the church. And not only that, we're given the ability to have a good behavior. Stuart's going to talk about that tomorrow.